Hello, Blenders, and welcome to episode number 72 of Real Blend, a podcast that is marginally less depressing than episode number four of Chernobyl. That is is the one. If you've made it that far into Chernobyl, uh, that's the one where you will be clinging to your doggies afterwards. Daenerys, come here. Come on, me. I really did that. I believe it. Um, my name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend and one of the three illustrious hosts of the weekly Real Blend podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We are down Kevin McCarthy, entertainment reporter for Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. BDK got pulled away. But I'm happy to be joined by Jake Hamilton, the entertainment reporter for Fox 32 in Chicago. How are you, handsome? Doing well. Marginally happy. You're like, ah, oh, like... Jake's here. Like, <laughs> no, all right. not at all. Not at all. And you brought Daenerys with you as well. I did. And she's alive, unlike the dogs in Chernobyl. Oh, see, spoilers, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, not a lot of people got out of Chernobyl alive. Yeah, very true. Uh, I'm teasing Chernobyl because, and I'm going to say this on record now, which means that it'll fall apart. But later on today, the day that we are <laughs> recording, uh, we are due to get Craig Mazin, um, the... Uh, creator, co- co- creator, scripter. Did he direct any of the episodes? No, he scripted. I don't them. believe so. Yeah, the writer of Chernobyl. This is a. We don't do TV a lot on this show, although I feel between Game of Thrones and just some of the strong stuff that's been coming across HBO, we've been shifting into more TV talk lately. And Chernobyl is one of those things where Jake, you said it. I think you even said it on the podcast last week. It's better than any movie that you've seen yeah. this year. Yeah, it is better than. And granted, I get that that's unfair to say because we're talking about a five-hour story, sure, um, versus you know a two-hour movie. But I mean, if you look at, I mean, uh, it's only two hours longer than a three-hour movie, which we've gotten some of those this year. Yeah. Uh, but I just think the in terms of writing, direction, uh, the performances. I mean, like I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, but there is a sequence uh, in the final episode involving. Blue plates and red plates <laughs> being moved up and down a scale. That is some of the most thrilling television I've seen all year. And yeah. it makes no sense. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen it? I didn't make it that far yet. No. Okay. I know. It's, I don't think that's a spoiler. That's okay. But anyone that has seen the final episode knows what I'm talking about. And it's unbelievably thrilling. I feel like I've seen the entire episode because you and Kevin have talked about very little else in the text chain beyond Chernobyl, essentially. Yes. Like I shared um, really nice pictures from my youngest son's uh, middle school graduation with the guys. <laughs> and then literally that evening, uh, my oldest son was going to a quinceanera. Like it's a big deal, a dance in high school. And Kevin was like, right, but the dogs in Chernobyl dying. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was the best like transition, transition of like, guys, like look at my children and look at like the fruits of my loins. And, and like, this is my family. And what a great weekend for me as a father. And almost yeah. instantly Kevin was like, yeah, but remember when all the dogs in Chernobyl died? <laughs> and he didn't mean it. It just was. <laughs> he didn't. That's how he the didn't. conversation was flowing. Yeah. <laughs> I picked the wrong time to share those photos. Yeah. Uh, we are. Oh, so we're going to have Craig Mazin on the show. Hopefully, I'm going to knock on wood because we haven't yet spoken to him. Uh, this is a little behind the scenes tease, but we expect to have him uh, later on in the episode getting uh, in depth with us about the creation of Chernobyl and the reaction to Chernobyl and um, just hopefully telling some amazing stories about the creation of that show. We are going to kick off this week's episode with reviews, but before we get into that, uh, we have some podcast news to share here at Cinema Blend. And um, Jake, you will find this ironic. Do I know this? You don't know this yet, no. Uh, Gabe, who is our uh, silent producer, right? Who we're constantly coaxing 
to join the show and being rebuffed at every turn um, has accepted a position uh, as the third chair for our sister podcast, the Hero Blend podcast. Wait, so, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. What, what was supposed to be my reaction to this? Uh, exactly what you're giving me that's, right now. That's like, <laughs> yes. like, like you ask out a girl, right? Like every every week, repeatedly for a year, right? And she comes back and goes, "Look, and not I'm like a not ten, go out like yeah. a six, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm not going to go out with you, but good news, I'm going to go out with your best friend, your best friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what? And what? we're engaged, not just and going we're out. Engaged. We're engaged and are expected. Wow." <laughs> E2 Brute? So this is a way for us to organically promote uh, the Hero Blend podcast, of which now Gabe is going to be a co-host, third chair. Now, the good news is we're not losing Gabe as producer of the Real Blend podcast, but what that amounts to that is hasn't not much. Decided. Not much, right? Because <laughs> this is a show that runs itself for the most part. And I would want him to come on and challenge that that uh, assertion, but he won't speak. <laughs> He won't talk. So if you want to hear more of Gabe, after you're done listening to the Real Blend podcast in full. Please I have head some on. questions for him. Like, one, how dare you? <laughs> and two. There's a line in the, in the sand has been drawn. <laughs> and two, and how know, dare and we, you? And two, how dare you? <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good, it's a Wait vote of confidence. Wait until Kevin McCarthy finds out. It's a vote of confidence for them, honestly. And, uh, but, but Gabe, you're, Gabe, you're not. You're literally you're staying with us though too, right? Yeah, all right. I mean, I feel like I should be like happy for like like congratulations, Gabe. Right. This, this is it is kind of it is a backhanded sort of wonderful opportunity. He me. was so excited to tell me too, Jake. I wish you could have seen like he was like he was like I have news, but it's a little bit strange. Like it was almost like a breakup. It was like a it's <laughs> like a I found someone a little bit better. It, there was a it's, sense it's, of that. It's not you. It's me. Well, I'm gonna switch over to people who like us. And this is uh, these are people who've written reviews. And Gabe's never written us a review, has he? Not a one. Nope, not once. In fact, we have 105 star ratings on our iTunes, and 104 of them are five star ratings. And there's one three star rating, and I think it's Gabe. I think it was Gabe who who knocked us down a bit using uh, a fake name. But this one is from Tony from Michigan. Oh, this is this is really funny. Tony from Michigan writes, I love the show. Now, Gabe, should I throw this other website under the bus? Should I name them? All right. Tony says, once I accepted that my go-to movie website, Screen Rant, was a shell of its former self. Oh! And I realized that their podcast was never going to fully come back. I searched for something to fill that void. Now, let me press pause and just mention that I like the guys at Screen Rant. Like, yes, they're, they're great they're, guys. They're friendly guys. We get along really well. I've not heard their podcast. Maybe they haven't heard our podcast. I'm not quite sure. So maybe maybe it was great. Maybe it's not quite as good as it used to be anymore. But, Tony, we're really glad to have you over here on the Real Blend Podcast. Welcome. You are now an official blender. Back to his review. He goes, so here I am, a new listener who's ashamed I haven't stumbled upon this podcast much sooner. I've been listening to the podcast since January and so thankful for the entertainment the three of you provide. I look forward to the gang's insight, opinions, light banter, the interviews, and the terrible but oh-so-lovable puns. P.S. Us answers the question of what the tethereds do when the person on the surface travels in a vehicle. I noticed it on my second viewing Thanks to that question being brought up in one of the episodes. 
Signed, Tony from Michigan. Wait, what, what is the answer? Yeah, Tony, can you share the answer and, with and, us? And Jake, what happens when you get on a plane? Neither Jake nor I know what the answer is. Tweet us. Tony, if you're listening to this week's episode, please tweet us the answer. Include tag at RealBlend and tag at Jordan Peele also, because we tried to get him on the podcast for a deep spoiler discussion of us and... Uh, and he um, never never replied to him. <laughs> never replied to us. Probably because uh, he knew that our uh, that our producer was a freaking Judas. Or maybe he listened to a few of the episodes where you and I discussed our problems with us. Yeah. To be fair, issue. if if filmmakers don't come on our show based on us not liking <laughs> certain films, we're not yeah. going to get anyone ever. Well, I'm glad we got Ty Sheridan uh, early before we reviewed X Men. But when we talked to Ty Sheridan last week um, on behalf of Dark Phoenix, we teased that we were going to have some spoiler talk with him. The funny thing that happened with that was, and we're getting better at doing this in person, but when we interview people live, when the three of us are all there in one spot, it's hard to keep track of the time. Like we're we pick up threads from what other people are saying. We transition into what the next question is going to be, and we were still having pretty in-depth conversation with Ty before we got the the almost the wrap. And and here we're all seasoned junket people who are used to seeing someone in the room saying, you're done, you know, counting us down almost, and someone gave us two minutes left with Ty Sheridan. So we had to very quickly run through some spoiler talk with him, and he told us a fantastic story uh, that has been making the rounds on the internet this week about how the fact that the aliens in Dark Phoenix were supposed to be scrolls. So I'm going to let him tell it right now. Uh, his remembering of the original details of Dark Phoenix, as well as some additional spoiler talk from Ty Sheridan. Your director gave this amazing tease uh, in an interview about a, an alternate ending where they filmed some stuff where the battle was going to be in space. Mm. Um what details do you remember about what you shot from that scene? We know that the train sequence works really well with the team, uh, but I was just super curious as a fan, like to hear about an alternate ending in space. Cause I love the X-Men in space. I think we even reshot that sequence like twice or yeah. three times. Yeah. Wow. It's really hard for me to remember what the end of this movie is. Really? No kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the originally, uh, that was scripted that, that Charles and Scott go to the UN because, man, I'm totally gonna mess this up. Um, <laughs> they go to they go to the UN because they're gonna try to tell they're gonna try to get into the UN and tell the president that hey we're under attack by aliens, okay. and oh. and they've now captured Jean Grey or you know whatever it is they were gonna tell him, and then. Gene, Gene comes down at in the front of the UN and causes and there's this huge battle between the guards at the UN and Gene Gray and all the guards turn turn out to be scrolls. Um, and then scrolls. and then Gene and Whoa. Scott are Scott is fighting scrolls in the fountain. He gets thrown into the fountain in front of the UN. Um, and then Gene comes down and, and basically fights all the scrolls off wow. and then uh, blasts back off into space um and basically says goodbye to scott and and charles and then it's all over i guess so i I, yeah will we ever see that like with with, like i wonder like oh man good question uh i don't know you guys did shoot it we reshot that like That's two crazy. or three times, actually. Wow. Is that frustrating then when they come in? Yeah, but I mean, it's part of the process, man. It's like, you know, you never know what 
you could something could read so great on on the page, sure. and then the second you put it on a screen in front of someone, it becomes something else. And it's really hard to figure out, you know, what the best version of a movie is, and also specifically the ending of a film. Yeah. The ending of a film is really hard to nail. Yeah. Um, and obviously, these films, you know, set up a formula where you kind of want to see, you know, you always there's always a big battle at the end. You kind of with the X Men, you kind of want to see them kind of united together at the end. So that was, I think that was what led to the reshoots and I could be totally wrong. Um, but you should, I mean, you should definitely ask Simon about it, but, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my two cents there. Give us the wraps. I was going to ask one more spoiler mm-hmm. question before we let you go. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence's last day on set. Um, you know, obviously a powerful death scene and, and, uh, it was going to be, I think shocking for a lot of people to actually see that on the big screen. What was that like on set? What was the mood like? Well, how was she doing? How was it with you? Um, yeah, I don't, I think I, I would think I was there watching a monitor. Um, yeah, it was pretty, you know, emotional. I mean, Nick is great in that scene. And, uh, yeah, it was beautiful seeing the two blue people, you know, one dying and then the other one holding her in his arms. Um, but yeah, I, I, she was, she was very, she was in and out and, uh, I just, yeah, I guess it was, you know, everybody was, was, uh, was um, thankful for inclusion in the franchise and it was, you know, a cool send off. Um, yeah. And I think it will be super surprising for, for people. And we got to wrap up. Please make ready player two. I think, I think <laughs> Ernest is working on that. I'm, I'm hoping that you come back for that. Cause Wade Watts is one of my favorite characters. Oh, ever. thanks man. Thank you. It was my number one. Oh, of the year. oh awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. Thank, you. thank you. I appreciate it. Thank thanks a lot. I love that story because, you know, this is a movie that's been delayed a couple of times. And here we are putting it on an actor to kind of remember like what he went back and filmed, which was, I would assume, two, two and a half years ago. And he did a pretty good job of like, if you and I, the thing I think about it is if you and I filmed a major blockbuster, like every detail about it would be ingrained in our memory. But these guys film so much stuff that... I think their memories just get hazy. Okay, but let me flip that though, because how many times has someone asked us, have we ever interviewed person X? Yeah. Whoever the case may be. And you genuinely have to pause and yeah. think about like, did I interview, have I interviewed that person before? And the average person meets a celebrity and remembers that moment for the rest of our lives. Because we do this so much. There, it, it all. I don't want to say it becomes a blur because that makes it seem like we don't appreciate it. But you genuinely, really do sometimes have to pause and go like, "Have I interviewed that?" Or like, "What would I have interviewed that person?" And granted, there are some that you automatically know. Oh yeah. But yeah, I, I can totally see how like over a span, especially as long as we've been doing this and as long as he's been, you know, how long that you know the gap between when he shoots stuff and when it comes out. Um, I could see him sort of kind of forgetting certain details. But didn't you remember? I, uh, you know, whenever whenever you're doing these interviews. Your, your, your brain's kind of working in two ways. One, you're trying to listen to what it is that they're saying. Yeah. So that you can respond organically and make sure that you catch and follow up on things that need to be caught and, fo- and followed up on. But your the other half of your brain is also like two or three steps ahead, okay? Like we've got X number of minutes. I need to make sure that I get questions X, Y, and Z in. So you've got two different things going on in your brain at one time. But the second he said scrolls, yeah. my brain just went like lit up and went, there's our story. Like also- it's, it's done. There's yeah. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. And I would also assume that over the course of that day, they had talking points of like, 
you don't mention this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would bet scrolls were on the don't talk about a hundred percent. But he he went right into it. Yeah. He named him scrolls, and you're, yeah, you're exactly right. The bell went off, and I was like, oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I almost like I almost <laughs> wanted to look at you, but I was afraid that giving any kind of a sign of like how big of a scoop that was. Yeah, might yeah. freak him out, and then you know the talent always has the ability to request that certain things be removed from interviews, and so I yeah. really wanted to downplay that moment out of fear of the studio coming back and going, "Hey, actually, we need you to take that out." Well, and also in addition, there were Fox reps in the room listening yeah. too, and yeah. they, like you say, had, could say, "Oh, you know what? Don't don't use that answer." That's happened to all of us. Yeah, hundred percent of that. Multiple times. I can actually think of one that you had. <laughs> That I won't stay still. Yeah. That would have been pretty I mean, I, I can, juicy. I can say it. I mean, at this point, we oh, all now know. you can. I think so. I think it was before. So I had Zoe Saldana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, a few weeks before, uh, before an animated film she did, but it was like a couple of weeks before uh, Endgame. And missing Link I, for Missing Link. Missing Link. Yes. Maybe you didn't want to say. That. Um, and it was, and at the time, you know, we didn't really, you know, she was dead. She she wasn't snapped away in Infinity War. She was killed. She yes. was dead. Sacrifice. So there was really no guarantee that she was going to be coming back in Endgame. And so I – she said something – I said something about like shooting uh, – what it was like for her shooting the death scene. And for her, her she, the way she answered the question was she didn't know when in the movie it was going to take place because they shot so much stuff out of order that she didn't really know when it was going to be. And she didn't know if she was going to be in Endgame or Infinity War. And I said, well, like, how much stuff did you shoot? She goes, oh, I've shot plenty of stuff that hasn't been seen yet. And I pause and I go, does that mean you're an endgame? And she goes, oh, yeah. She goes, I shot, like, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely shot, like, stuff that, that like, big stuff that hasn't been And seen. now we know, yes. Yeah, now we know exactly what it was. Stuff. And I go, really? She goes, oh, yeah. And after I left, <laughs> and you know what? Like, we've experienced the, the, the good and the downside of publicists. Publicists? can ask the, the same question 10,000 different ways, very mean or very kind. And to her credit, her publicist pulled me aside and could not have been nicer. It was yeah. just like, look, man, like she really wasn't supposed to reveal that she's an end game. Uh, we would, we would really appreciate just for sake of not ruining it for fans. She didn't realize kind of what she was doing when she said that we'd appreciate if you didn't run with that. And, right. and I didn't. And I, I texted you 30 seconds right before he came out and said, like, dude, I've got this massive scoot cinema blend has to run with. And then her guy came out and because he was so genuinely nice and, and I'm not like, if he came out and been rude, I'm not entirely sure what I would have done. Cause it would have right. been with it well within my right to, to run with it. Um, but he was, he was genuinely, he seemed to come at it from the perspective of like, dude, let's not ruin it. Like this movie's important to a lot of people. Sure. Let's not ruin it for people. And I respected how he came about it. I respect how people request things. And so I, I withheld that scoop. There you go. And see, if it just goes to show, if you treat journalists with a little bit of respect, we it's, might be able to all yeah. work together. But uh, talking about treating things with uh, not as much respect as they probably deserved, let's talk about Dark Phoenix's box office and its reception from the fans. Yes. Yeah. Listen, I liked it more than you guys did. I'm not saying it's a home run. Uh, but that thing lost out to Secret Life of Pets 2 yeah. at the box office. Uh, yeah. Dark Phoenix earns $32 million a Secret Life of Pets 2 that, that underperformed, massively yes. underperformed. Yes, it did. And it and Dark Phoenix still couldn't top it. And so, you know, the, the X-Men saga, unfortunately, the stamp on it's going to be that it went out, went out with a whimper. Um, and, 
you know, Marvel's already saying essentially that it that they're probably going to put it on the shelf for a little while and let interest in the franchise or in those characters build back up. And I think that's fair, right? Like this, I feel bad. I do feel bad. It felt like no matter whenever they released this movie, it was just going to be, it's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like they didn't start filming it knowing that, that Marvel was going to absorb Fox or Disney was going to absorb Fox. And they, they had to release it. They put their best face forward. You know, they did press, they went out and promoted it. And, um, and it just showed a general, Lack of interest in in how that franchise was going to conclude. And so now tell me, do you think that that affects New Mutants at all? Does Disney now say, look, this failed? (laughs) Uh, I I think it gets thrown on uh, Disney Plus. Yeah. And kind of forgotten about. Yeah, I think so. Because especially if, I mean, now they kind of have the perfect opportunity to, the the perfect excuse to do that. To just say, you know what, we're going to reboot this within the next couple of years. Let's kind of let it go away for a while. Well, and what it allows them to do is that those are a few more characters that can be introduced for the first time as MCU characters. And you won't have a comparison. Not that the New Mutants are ever as popular as any of the main X-Men movies, but you could do a New Mutants movie now in the MCU and not have to compete with uh, versions of the characters that people know in their heads from a, a movie that that didn't necessarily do very well. So we'll see how that goes. Um, speaking of another franchise that is flirting with being rebooted, have you paid any attention to Jason Reitman's comments from this Ghostbusters fan event that he went to? I have not, you guys went to the to the fan event, right? You went we to the, went to it. And which, yeah, did it was, you know that Ghostbusters and Gremlins came out on the same day? Yes. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? In 1984. Yeah, I know. Is, it, was, is that the most 80s day that ever existed? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely up there for sure. Uh, and we watched Gremlins. Brendan and I rewatched it over the weekend to celebrate it. How does it hold up? I haven't seen it in probably 15 years. Spectacularly. That's awesome. It's That's awesome. still amazing. And, you know, it's practical effects. They don't age. Gizmo's still yeah. incredible. The things that they do with the lizardy gremlins is great. It yeah. still has good suspense to it. The humor's not dated. It's oh, I still love I, it. I need to go back and, and rewatch them because I, I get one and two mixed up a lot. Like certain oh, things, okay. like I'll see a certain scene and genuinely not know whether it comes from one or two. One is sweet. It's just got this little, you know, it's it's, it's like an indie sort of scrappiness to it that I love. And uh, but also jo- it has that Amblin. I don't want to say horror to it, but that yeah. little bit of like the kind of what Shazam had where there's a little bit of an edge to it. You know, it's, Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's a kid's movie, but there are some moments where the kid's probably going to bury his or her head in their hands. Uh, the confrontation between the mom and the gremlins in the kitchen goes just yeah. as edgy as you want it to go, which I think is a lot of fun. And I did. Is I, the I turned to Brad, with the elderly woman going up and down on the, the that's stairs. In the first one. Yeah, yeah, that's in the first one. Okay. That's in the first one. <laughs> and it's still very, very funny. It really uh, is. Jason Reitman talks about the new Ghostbusters. Here's what he's had to say. These were the, these were his interesting takeaways for it. He wouldn't confirm that the original characters are coming back, but he did confirm with a knowing wink that everyone has read the screenplay, including Sigourney Weaver, uh, Ernie Hudson, and of course, Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. Um, Sigourney Weaver said this past week that she can't wait to get back and work with the guys in this franchise again. So she kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Reitman wouldn't confirm. Um, He did say that his inspiration for the new movie was a character that he had in his brain and has had in his brain over the past several years. Didn't know how it was going to come about, but it just kept sort of developing little by little in his brain. And it was a 12-year-old girl and she was holding a proton pack. Well, now we know that she's going to be played by McKenna Grace, 
who recently played young Carol Danvers. Great uh, actress. Great actress. She was in Gifted with Chris Evans. Gifted, which is yeah. fantastic. Really good movie. Um, her brother will be Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things and It. Their mother is going to be Carrie Coon. Oh, um, love her. And then what he said was, um, it's going to be a new location and a new group of characters that will have a connection to the original Ghostbusters characters, but they don't know what the connection is, and the Ghostbusters don't know what the connection is. Um, but beyond that, he did not want to reveal any more details, and you could tell he was being really cautious about, like, I want to say something because we're at a fan event, and I know everybody here wants to know details, um, but please let me protect this the secrets for as long as we can. You know, just sort of trust me. This is my dad's. Look, my dad created this world. I want to do a love letter to it. And I just left. I didn't go to the fan event, but I watched the video that we shot of his comments. And uh, I left feeling a lot more confident, you know, in we talk a lot about when you bring these franchises back. Like, do you have a reason to want to bring them back? Right. And it feels like he truly has the right reasons um, for wanting to bring them back. And, you know, and and I, I really scoffed at whatever before when people would say, oh, well, you know, it's Jason Reitman and his dad did. And I would always my big thing was like, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. It's not his and he shouldn't. Matter. But if you think about it, I do understand his point of like it's his dad's in that he doesn't want to mess it up. Right. Yeah. You sure. know, that's that's his father's legacy. And I don't think he's going to do a good job with it because his dad did. Therefore he does because skill is transferable like that. But I do think he's going to do a good job with it because I think he wouldn't take it upon himself to potentially mess up the legacy of something his father built. Yeah. Agreed. And and that gives me hope. I think he would rather not do it than potentially risk, uh, messing up. Yeah. His father's story. Let's pause it there and bring BDK in. Kevin McCarthy makes it Kevin! back in time to join this week's episode. Hello, BDK. Fellas, how are you? Thank you for uh, for letting me join in late. Uh, <laughs> I was driving back from uh, New York. You guys all know I had to bring the show down, but my grandmother had passed away like the week prior, and we were in New York for uh, a family thing to see her, and then I was dealing with some work stuff right when I got home, so my apologies. Well, the show is not the show unless it's all of us together, uh, and that usually Speaking includes- of- Someone's Speaking special. of, yes, Jake, the show is not the show without all of us together. Sean, what a what a beautiful sentiment. Thank you. That was I, Kevin. I, I feel that way. There are there are a few constants on this show. Yes, and one of them is that Gabe, while he does love us, will not speak. Right. Correct? Like right. he 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 refuses to speak on our show. And Almost like it makes him uncomfortable. Yeah, like I didn't right. take it personally. Like he's the man behind the scenes. You know, he's 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 the man behind the curtain. And, uh, you know, he's the Wizard of Oz. But like the Wizard of Oz, apparently he's full of shit. <laughs> There's our Because e. Gabe <laughs> is going to be a co-host what? Wait, 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 of stop. Hero Blend. On, on Hero Blend? <laughs> a speaking <laughs> co-host. Third chair. Wait a second here. <laughs> so hold on, hold on. Is that the entire reason why Gabe has not been talking on our show to build up his fan base that he doesn't talk. So that we've been bamboozled. Right. And then now that he's finally going to let his vocal cords work, he's going to use them for another podcast. Do you hope he has the voice of an 11 year old girl? He relaunched his Twitter feed, Gabe Hero Blend. 
Yeah. Which I, which I find pretty offensive. That is um, kind of offensive. I, I also... <laughs> hey, can, in, can um, we do, it, um, like, pick our favorite traders next week, like Trader Blend? <laughs> yeah. I, know, I have mine. I have mine. And if you look at uh, if you look at Gabe's uh, profile on Twitter, it says Eric Eisenberg's number one fan. Oh, man. I was like, See, really? That's, wow. Yeah. Like, what is wow. going on here? Gabe, <laughs> Gabe, this has been a plot all along. I think he's been purposely not talking on our show because he wanted us to build him up. And now he gets to leave us. Gabe, what is the deal blend? <laughs> wow. You know I, what? I'm not. A, you know what? Pun away. Pun, I don't, I don't this, this, the, the show's gone to shit. Just, just it, pun away. It feels like those guys steel blended you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't rap us, Gabe. Gabe, yeah. Gabe must have no heart. Otherwise, he would feel blend this. Yeah, yeah. He, see, Jake, Jake's jumping in on it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, this is unbelievable. I can't believe. I'm actually. I need some a second to process this. This is shocking. Wait, wait. When is this? When is this being implemented? Uh, that's a good question. Now it this happened? week. So wait, does that mean Gabe cannot ever speak on our show, or do we have to refer to him now as no longer producer Gabe, but Hero Blends Gabe when we uh, refer to him? Qu- that's a That is a great question. I don't know the answer to this. He's typing. It means I'm too expensive to talk here. We can't afford him. Wow. We need uh, him to cut us a deal blend. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, Kevin, do you know Zod's favorite podcast? I would love to know that. It's Neil Blend. Neil Blend. <laughs> Neil before Zod. I love that line in Kevin Smith movies. What does it, Jay say it? Neil before Zod. I got to be I, honest. I, I, yeah. I thought if anyone would be the first to leave, it would be me. Yeah. We were hoping. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's transition into Chernobyl discussion. And we're going to keep this kind of brief because Jake went into it at length last week. But Kevin, you have since caught up with all five episodes. Am I correct? Yeah, I I know we're going to have Craig Mason on the show later, which I'm very excited about. And I don't don't mean to plug another podcast, but there's a uh, uh, he did an amazing. Apparently, that's that's what we're in the business of these days. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I mean, because also I I think Craig's going to come on and announce that uh, that Gabe's also joining the Chernobyl (laughs) podcast, even though they've only done five episodes. They're somehow going to greenlight a season two just so they can bring Gabe in. but the Chernobyl podcast was a five episode miniseries podcast that followed each episode of the show. And it actually goes into great detail about what things Craig Mazin as a writer and creator of the show had to um, fictionalize and also things he had to keep real. Jake, did you listen to the podcast yet or no? I did not. It's fascinating. Like, like um, there's a lot of things. So he explains his decisions about why certain things were compacted like for example emily watson's character i believe she's made up of 12 different scientists um and she's one character in the show she's a nuclear physicist who helps out jared harris's character she's a combination of a bunch of different scientists but because of storytelling purposes you combine all these things but i think jake would agree when you're watching chernobyl and i watched chernobyl because of jake's praise for it and i was like blown away because he said it was the best thing he'd seen this year even from a movie standpoint and it truly was Masterful storytelling, masterful everything, uh, cinematography, score, uh, writing, characters, all from the writer who wrote Scary Movie 3, 4, Hangover 2, 3, <laughs> Identity Thief. And I'm going to ask him this in the interview about what that that transition and what he found about writing drama that differed from specifically always doing comedy. Um, and I'm sure he'll not be shy about talking about how some of those movies he made weren't great films and I, I think I'd be, I'd be interested to know what his thought process on that is but interestingly enough um, 
when you're Jake, one of the cool things about the show, one of the cool things, but one of the sad parts about the show is this, this relationship that we follow throughout the show of this woman who's uh, married to a firefighter and that firefighter's character um, is exposed to the massive amounts of radiation. Remember when these firefighters went up to this explosion, they thought they were dealing with a roof fire. This had never happened in the history of the world, like in the sense of a nuclear reactor exploding, the core exploding, graphite being all over the ground. And Jake said last week something that was interesting to me is like, as you watch the show, you really truly start to understand nuclear physics. Like I was, I feel like, like there's a great scene where Stellan Skarsgård and Jared Harris are flying in a helicopter and Stellan Skarsgård outright just says, explain this to me in a nutshell. And while that could have come across as like really bad exposition, it made sense because no one had ever dealt with this before. So you're watching a character explain it to somebody who doesn't understand it. And we as an audience are educated and it doesn't feel like we're being, it's being cheaply said to us. Uh, Kevin, I was saying earlier uh, on the show that in the in the final episode, and this isn't a spoiler, but there's a scene that involves sliding blue and red plates up and down a scale. That yep. is some of the most thrilling, it, and it sounds like it should be boring, and it should be boring. <laughs> yeah, but it's some of the most captivating television. Yeah, I've seen in forever. Sliding blue and red plates up and down yeah. a scale, <laughs> and it's masterfully written and and beautifully yeah. acted by Jared Harris, and it's. Uh, I kept thinking, how is this so good? He's yeah. just moving plates, and the plates but it's so have, good. Don't the plates have a different language written on them? Like they're mm-hmm. not even like it's they're, not even they're in Russian. I would imagine it, it's being explained to us through Jared Harris's character as he's explained to the court what scientifically went down. I mean, this is not a spoiler. But we're, we're, you know, Chernobyl is an incident that obviously really occurred in history. But one of the things about Jake and I, and from my perspective, I'll speak for myself. I didn't know about how the people didn't know the severity of what was going on. That's what scared me the most. And Jake covered that last week. But one of the things that's fascinating to me when you're watching the show, there's this woman who's, I mentioned the firefighter she was married to, who is pregnant. And Mm -hmm. she is told not to touch her husband who has been in contact with this radiation. But think about, from a viewer's perspective, you're sitting on your couch going, why are you touching him? That's the dumbest thing ever. Well, but she just thought he yeah, was burnt. They weren't explaining to her. That's the point. That's the beauty of the show. Because they I don't think they knew. They because she just kept saying, right. hey, what's the, what's the big well, deal? He's, he's just burned. So I've only seen one episode, but I also know that like it's hinted at, at the very beginning, the very end of the first episode too. Russia's approach to the to this stuff isn't it very it's much done. like hide it shut it down contain oh you know? yeah yeah well because that's, they, that's the, because that's they the, would have to admit that they made a mistake yeah right and that's the scary thing when i go back to that woman and her husband the firefighter uh they were married right jake they were definitely married i believe and they had a kid along the way they were, they were either seriously dating or they were married right um she was pregnant and but to the point i was making was these people had absolutely no idea the severity of the radiation they were coming in contact with. So in all honesty, I think I also would have gone up to my loved one yeah. and comforted them. So like like I was saying to Lauren as, as we were watching it, she was like yelling at the TV about why she's touching him. I'm like, Lauren, she doesn't know. Yeah, right. We, we understand the severity which, because we're watching the show. Which boils back to the opening line, the opening question of the show, yep. which is applicable – just so many things going on in the world right now, which is what is the cost of lies? Yeah. By lying, what is going to happen? And, and he, we yeah. and that's the in this five episode miniseries is the answer. That is the cost of lies. And some that's of the amazing. things they took out of the show that Craig can talk about in our interview later on is 
the things that they took out are even more mind blowing. There were there were parades still happening around the area like wow. days later um, without anybody really knowing that they were breathing in. I mean, Jake, do you remember this, the number breakdown of what that nuclear core, what it was emitting every hour was like 10 Hiroshima bombs or something oh, like that? I thought, he, oh I, wanna say, I thought he said 40. 50 oh. or 40, yeah. I, I mean, Im- imagine the amount of radiation. The craziest line of dialogue in the show for me was when Jared Harris explains what happens to someone's body as they deal yeah. with the radiation. Now, Jake and I will get into this with Craig because uh, I want to talk to him about the way he handled the animals, if that's really how it went down. What fascinated me the most, and Jake, I don't know if you, uh, this is something you thought about when you first watched it. When I first watched it, I wondered to myself, why aren't they speaking in Russian? And uh, and Lauren and I were talking about that. We thought maybe it was just, maybe they just, they just knew English in that area. I listened to Craig Mazin on that podcast. His reasoning was actually pretty brilliant. They only hired British actors, if you notice. Every actor apparently, apparently from what I understand, is British in the, in the show. They let them, for the most part, from what I understand, speak their native tongue. And what ends up happening as you're watching it is it all, in, in Craig's words, it melts away. You forget. Because the words they're saying are what matters. It's not about their accent. But imagine, like, them stretching their accents and trying to speak Russian. It could come across as goofy. Mm. So, like, he was talking about this idea that they actually made them speak in their in their native accents because it actually just helps get the story points across. Um, I really advise you guys to listen to the podcast if you can because it really kind of breaks down what's real, what's fictional, what's been put together, um, I've seen a lot of differing stories about the coal miners, whether or not they were really naked. I don't know if that was like a fact or if that was, you know, written in more from a dramatic reading. But Craig has a great uh, mindset of this. But going to the show and I'll wrap up and to Jake's point, it's one of the most brilliant shows I've ever seen. And it is truly cinematography and score wise. Perfect. Like they actually, re- for me, made me feel like they recreated Chernobyl. Wow. And it is, I think they shot a lot in Lithuania to recreate those scales um, of what those buildings looked like. And like, Jake, you know what was kind of cool, and this is in the first episode, is how they approached the explosion. So yeah. you, when you watch the first episode, you get the experience of the explosion from a, from a, from an apartment building uh, a kilometer so away. So that you're like them and that right. you don't really know what's happening. And it's scary. Like, yeah. uh, so just a heads up for people out there. I mean, I, I have a lot of problems with dog uh, and animal violence in movies, as, as most people do. Um, this in particular was, number four. was not a pleasant experience. Um, I will say that... You almost didn't finish. Well, I paused it two or three times. Lauren left the room. There's something... But in the back of my mind, I think Jake will agree what those dogs would have experienced was way worse. Oh, they, yeah, they, they did they, them, they, they did them service, but it was, it was the, it was the using of the innocence of the dogs yeah. to the, run out. The wagging of the tails. Yeah. So, but just, just do yourself a favor, watch the show. And Sean, I think you asked the question to Jake last week, is this homework? Um, it's not homework at all. And it's actually educational uh, to a point where I feel completely so much more knowledgeable about the situation now other than Chernobyl. Didn't they make some terrible horror film called Chernobyl Diaries? Like, yeah, but uh, it was like, it was as if like there were zombies or something like or that. Something. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just feel like people don't. So I, I was on the air the other day talking about the show and I, and I won't name the person, but this person emailed me from work and they were actually near the Chernobyl site when everything went down. Oh man. And I and I and I responded back to them. I said, "Did you watch the show yet?" And she said, "No." And then I went back and I read her email. Every single detail that she put in her long email to me, I'll forward it to you, was exactly 
what the show presented. Wow. And she hasn't even seen the show. Wow. So, like, That's that awesome. to me blew my mind because it gave – I mean, Jake knows this. When you see the kids running around just playing outside and their schools and that stuff's being carried throughout different countries and, and, and cities uh, and then the government trying to hide it. And, I mean, wait till you get four episodes, five episodes in, you, you realize what the actual problem was. I mean, Jake, I think you'll agree. I mean, this is not – we're not spoiling anything. This is history. Hmm. It was a mixture of human error and scientific fault. I mean, there were two things that happened there. There was the guy running the test and his actions – and then there was the idea that the Azod 5 button at that point should turn everything down, and it didn't. That's a flaw in those nuclear reactors that was trying to be covered up. That's what's right, scary. Right, but it, it – and, you know, it, once again, not to get too much into it, it seemed like every scientific fault led back to a decision that was made based on money. But the ultimate explosion – should never have happened because that right. button should have it turned it down. But because right. the f- nuclear reactor was faulty, it exploded anyways. I mean, the guys, I mean, this show's been over. It's five weeks ago. I mean, like, this thing has already been airing. It's history. I, I don't feel like we need to, like, cover Well, no, but we're, and we're going to have plenty more discussion of it when yeah. Craig Jones but is watch on the it. show. Yeah. Jake was 100% right. I'm thankful that Jake pointed it out to me. I saw trailers during uh, Game of Thrones, and I didn't know what it was. And, uh... Yeah, it's it's a very horrifying yet very educational experience, which is why we're thrilled that Kevin went out of his way to actually ask Craig Mazin to join the Real Blood yeah. podcast. Uh, Isn't Twitter amazing, by the way? I, 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 Craig was on Twitter and I, I he doesn't know me. I just tweeted him saying I loved your show. Um, any chance you can you would come on for an interview? And he and he sends me back his publicist name, who I we all know and love. She's amazing. Yep. And BB and I and I. Um, emailed her and then he like we were we were like in a gift war he was like sending me like thank you gifts and like i was like sending him like it was like in the sense of like we were just tweeting back and forth uh <laughs> and then uh and then they made it happen like they um and we got a good amount of time with him which was kind of cool and you can listen to it right now all right uh this is a very special interview we are now joined by the creator and writer of the amazing television show chernobyl craig mazin is joining us i believe craig you're in california correct uh, yes, currently in Pasadena, Los Angeles County. Yeah, well, it's awesome to have you on. Jake and I are here. We've both seen the show. We both love the show. We talk about it constantly uh, <laughs> in our text message chains. It's, it's truly amazing. And I know for people out there, I do want to men- mention that uh, Craig has an amazing podcast that also went along with this show, uh, the Chernobyl Podcast, which is available um, on iTunes and a bunch of different places. But, Craig, I, I think I want to first start off talking about the impact this show has had on the world. Um, it's not, this is a global show, uh, and it's definitely uh, alerting people to a lot of what happened here. For me personally, I was ignorant to the whole scope and danger of everything. You know, you hear Chernobyl, you know the basic premise of the nuclear uh, reactor exploding, but the sheer um, just ignorance of, you know, the idea of people not knowing what was going on. That's what really scared me. Um, I'm curious. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of different people reaching out to you. I'm sure you've heard a lot of different stories. Uh, I'm curious, is there one particular story that you've been reached out to about that has, like, that you've noticed that this show is helping someone specifically? I know that um, this has been reaching a lot of people, but is there something that's kind of hit you the most, hit you the hardest? Well, we have, in a very lovely way, we've gotten some great feedback from people who are currently living in Ukraine, uh, people who are currently living in Russia who um, either were liquidators themselves or who have relatives who are liquidators. Um, some great stories about people finding out 
because of the show that they had a relative who was a liquidator and that person never really had spoken about it. Um, there was a a beautiful story. Somebody wrote about how they, they live in Ukraine and there was, and I guess it's not uncommon, a small, a, a little kind of homemade monument for the liquidators of Chernobyl and the firefighters. And it had just sort of been there, you know, all this time, the kind of thing that people pass by. And after the show came out, suddenly there were flowers. And I just thought, well, that's amazing. I mean, look, the whole, the purpose of the show, there's a a warning, you know, embedded in the show, but there's also a a kind of memorial to all these people who did these things without us knowing. And so that is just very heartwarming to me. Yeah. You know, on the flip side of that, so I I work at a TV station, a news station here in Chicago, and one of the stories that we had on the other day is that tourism at Chernobyl has now risen. Last I saw, 40%. I would not be surprised if it were higher. Yeah. Uh, Can't help but feel like just a little – I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Because obviously the message behind this series – was not let's all go visit Chernobyl. So when you hear that, <laughs> that that that's one of the reactions that's come from it, how do you feel about that? Well, well, I I definitely don't begrudge them their tourism. I mean, they they it's not like tourism just began there at Chernobyl, and there are some some um, companies that do guide work, and the people that are doing tour guides are people that grew up in Pripyat. Um, the people that gave us our tour through Pripyat and some of the exclusion zone had grown up there and Mm. could tell us stories about living in Pripyat. Um, And I believe that there's some income as well that's generated for the management of the zone and the upkeep and things. So there's, there's nothing wrong with what I would call respectful tourism. Uh, I just hope that people keep in mind that they're going somewhere that is the site of, of people dying and people getting sick. And in a much larger sense, it's a place where people used to live and now they can't. So yeah. there, it's, a, it's an area of displacement. And in fact, when I went to Chernobyl and visited um, the city of Chernobyl, the power plant and Pripyat, there was quite a lot of people that day going because it was one of the days where I don't think there are any fees involved of any kind. And people who used to live there just show up en masse to go visit where they used to live. Mm. And, and I just, I mean, remember there also, there are cemeteries there, you know, I mean, there's life there that was left behind. So I would just say anybody that wants to go visit it, I think that's great. Just try and maintain a, a level of decorum and respect. It's this, it's look, it's the same issue that they have at the nine 11 Memorial. It's the same issue. They, they, I mean, if you go on Instagram, you'll find people smiling and taking selfies yeah. at Auschwitz, you know, it's like, what? just trying to not be a jerk. Yeah, I feel like, and it's funny because I feel like there is, I don't think I could ever be a person who would go there and snap a photo of me at a site like that, but it's the ones where they're smiling or like doing like, I don't know, posing or some sort. And that's, I saw you tweet about that the other day about, you know, listen, we understand people might want to be interested in going to that area, but just be respectful of what that area means. And I thought that was a, a really nice way of saying don't take a selfie and smile in it with uh, with Chernobyl behind you. It's a little strange. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's. I mean, yeah. Just it's just decorum, exactly. <laughs> sense of respect. That's all. Don't be a dick. Is what yeah. you're yeah, saying. Pretty much. Yeah. Generally speaking, everything always adds up to don't be a dick. <laughs> so, Craig, um, one of the fascinating things I listened to, I was listening to this the podcast, and um, and this is actually interesting that this got brought up. So, while the sh- when the first sh- 
when the show first started, my wife and I were sitting next to each other, and I have so many things I want to get into about the cinematography and the score. I mean, the filmmaking on this show is top of the line I've ever seen. It looks incredible. Um, but I remember looking over at my wife during the first episode, only for the first five minutes or so, and I'm going, why aren't they speaking Russian? And as the show progressed and as my suspension of disbelief sucked me into the show five minutes later, I completely forgot and didn't care about that. Um, and you talked about this in the podcast, but I was wondering if you can go into a little more detail because I think it's fascinating that you chose the actors, British actors, to stay kind of in their native tongue it, with the idea that the viewer will eventually, because the message is the message. The, what the story is telling is the story. But the idea is that the viewer eventually forgets. So can you talk about like that, that lap? Because me, you do stop for a second and ask that question as a viewer, and then you forget. Sure. Yeah, and, and I think we were figuring people would stop for a moment and then forget. I mean, the first night, um, the first episode aired, and I was watching the kind of live commenting rolling by on Twitter, and there were quite a few like, whoa, whoa what's going on? <laughs> Why are they speaking British? Uh, and I completely understand, but our theory, which turned out happily pretty much to be correct for the vast majority of viewers, yep. is that it drops away Um you basically get stuck in two po possible universes. Um, when you're, look, there are a million things you have to do when you are adapting reality to film or television and you're collapsing time and space. One of the changes you have to make when you're dealing with um, a culture that speaks a different language is, is what to do about that. In one universe, you have everybody speaking with the Russian accent. They're speaking English, but with a Russian accent, which by the way, makes no more sense than speaking English with an English accent yeah. or English with an African accent. I mean, it's, it's English. So they did, Russians didn't speak Russian with an English accent and Ukrainians didn't speak Russian with an English accent, but there that's, that's a universe. And in that universe for the first 10 or 15 minutes of that show, nobody questions the accent at all. Mm. The problem is later when, as the show goes on, you just start to get, you know, you're like, okay, it's a show where people look, oh, they talk like this and they're putting, yeah. and they each have their own version of what it is. And everybody's basically Chekhov from Star Trek. And, right, right. and it just, it starts to feel a bit of, you know, like satirical almost. And we look, we want, there are actors who can act through accents and almost elevate through accents. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis elevates, you know, I mean, when he's speaking as Daniel Plainview, it's, 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 is that, was it, was it Daniel Plainview? Is that right? Yeah. Pick it there from, yeah. There will yeah. be blood. Yeah. From yeah. there will be blood. His, his American accent is, is better than everyone's American accent. It's like the best American accent. <laughs> Same when he was, you know, when he was in gangs in New York, it was like this incredible proto Brooklyn diet. He's amazing. Yeah. But then there are other actors who just the accent destroys them. I mean, they can't do it. And the acting gets diminished. We had a cast of over a hundred speaking parts. And it wasn't just people from the UK. It was also people from Ireland. It was people from Sweden. It was people from Denmark. We're all over the place. Yeah. Um, so the calculation we made was we're going to live in a slightly less comfortable universe for about 10 or 15 minutes, hmm. but reap the rewards of it on, on going forward. Um, and and it, I think it we worked. made the right choice. It 100% yeah, worked. worked. Yeah. It's funny because I didn't listen to the podcast until after I finished the whole series. And then when you said that, I was like, that's exactly what happened with my wife and I. We said that, and then we forgot about it. It was, like, amazing. All right, Jay, go ahead, buddy. 
Craig, you, you mentioned uh, when the first episode aired, kind of being on Twitter and seeing people's reaction. And I kind of want to shift to that. Uh, people's, I mean, we, li- we live in a world where we were all certain that Game of Thrones was going to be the talked about HBO product <laughs> this year. And I'd argue right now more people are talking about Chernobyl than are talking about Game of Thrones. Uh, it is the highest rated TV show on IMDb ever. Hmm. Uh, Stephen King tweeted about it. What, what was the reaction that first made you pause and go, like, holy shit, we we did something here? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, one of the, I think one of the benefits of making a television show for HBO is you still get to release it in the old-fashioned way. So it's an episode, hmm. and then a week goes by, and it's an episode, and a week goes by. So the first you had some great cliffhangers, man. You had some great cliffhangers. When, that, when those lights went out, my stomach dropped. Was that the good, end of episode good. one when the lights went out? No, it was two. Was two. two. One, yeah, one was bird, when the, the bird with the bird dropped. Yeah. yeah, when the lights went out in two, I was like, oh. I, was, I, I had binged it, so I, I went right to the next episode immediately. Yeah. I can't imagine being somebody who was like, seven days later, I got to wait for this. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I love that part, you know, and, <laughs> and I, you do write things to kind of accommodate what that stretch of time is going to be. Yeah. Um, it, it allowed people to, it, there was a build. I mean, the good news is what, and by the way, hats off to Game of Thrones. If there's no Game of Thrones, there is no Chernobyl, at least yeah. not on this level, because we had the benefit of airing our promos and our trailers yeah. along with Game of Thrones. That's as good, that's as much as the, it's like the Super Bowl basically for yeah. HBO, right? I mean, you're talking like 18, 20 million people at a given time. So... The first night that we aired, there was great feedback, um, and we had very good viewing numbers, but it, it wasn't in the level of like, Whoa. and then as the weeks went on, it just kind of just did this. And somewhere, somewhere in the middle of the, and I just kept saying you know, to my wife, I would say like, well, the, tonight's the episode that, that turns everybody off. This will be the one. <laughs> They're not going to like this, you know? Uh, it's mm. going to be too upsetting. It's going to be too distressing. It's going to be too violent. It's gonna, but it just, people just, the, the audience grew every week, which is counter to the normal audience viewing pattern for a limited miniseries. Usually you start at a number and then you just, you know, glide down to your true fans. And we grew. And somewhere around the third or fourth episode, I don't know if there's a, a specific moment, but suddenly I became aware that, you know, HBO, they would send a little summer email of like, here's what the press is saying, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, you get a summer email and then three days later you get another one. And, and then it was two days later and then it was every day. And then it was twice a day because it's just like, yeah, I don't know. It picks up and it becomes a thing and people are just really, really into it. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly proud that we have survived the, um, Scrutiny. I mean, it's it's yeah. pretty intense. You know, you mentioned uh, watching these episodes and wondering whether or not this was going to be too intense and people were going to check out. Uh, and Jake and I uh, both have, and I'm sure a lot of people do, uh, have had a lot of emotions watching episode four. And uh, and Jake Jake has a separate question about this as, as well as I do. But that episode, kind of going off what you just said to Jake's question, were you worried about that one in particular? Were you worried about people like to me? Like, and Jake will get into this as well about like animals. It's, you know, there's something about animals, but it's, it's, it's brutal. The two sequences that are specifically are very, very brutal and hard to watch. Was that a concern? Like, did you, did you think, oh, is this too much? Well, no, I didn't think it was too much. I thought that it was because my standard for too much or not enough was really 
an internal standard of what I thought was correct. Mm. I don't think that when you're creating um, historical drama and a retelling of tragedy that you you can't run away from the difficult things. You have to show them because that's that's the purpose. The purpose is you want people to know something they didn't know. And in this case, what I wanted people to experience was the fact that a lot of these um, men, it was mostly men, who were conscripted to serve in the zone were young and also had to do things that took a toll on them, not just physical, but a mental toll. It was a war. And and that that those stories are taken directly from first-person accounts. And so, I yes, I wanted to show it. I thought it was important to show it, how we showed it and how long you linger and what you choose to show. Well, there's where the, the kind of art comes in, and that's where Johan Rink and I had... Lots of discussions about how to do it. Uh, but no, I was, com- I was convinced that we were going to, you know, lose half the audience. Yeah. And it was, it was a hit I was willing to take because I thought it was the right thing to do. But I just know that there's like certain rules. And one of the rules is don't kill a dog. Yeah. <laughs> just, Did that's you it. see John Wick? Yeah. <laughs> don't kill a dog. Yeah. Don't kill a dog. Yeah. Don't do it. You know, yeah. I you mean, just don't. It, sort of expanding on the idea of, of episode four and that. Were you surprised by people? I mean, we had just spent three previous hours, I mean, watching men burn, watching men die, watching men in pain. And and, and I don't want to say that, that as an audience we're jaded to that because we've seen so many you know, R-rated films and violent films and you sort of get used to that. But then we sit down and watch dogs die yeah. and then we as an audience go, well, no, I just can't do that. I mean, what does that say – about us as an audience, and then what do you think when you write that? And that's our reaction after going through easily, not easily, but but right. watching what we watched before. Well, uh, in defense of humanity, <laughs> I will say that um, we, when we experience any kind of dramatic representation of the death of a human being, there's a a sense that we are experiencing some sort of intentional emotion, a closure, someone will survive on. There is a connected beauty to it. We all have the experience of having, you know, lost loved ones like that. And I mean, not in the way that people lost at Chernobyl, but we, we understand the disconnection of, that occurs when death happens. And there's a certain sense also of, well, this is a terrible way to die, but this man served his country and his fellow people he saved lives. He was brave. He was courageous. And we can memorialize his name and his actions and his life. Dogs don't know any of that, right? So they, animals are just innocent. They are utterly unaware. I mean, it's, 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 that's where the brutality emotionally comes from yeah. because they don't know. And particularly in this instance, and this is true, they were not wild animals. They were domesticated pets. They were happy to see you. And, and that is really difficult and it's heartbreaking. And I, I did not, again, I did, I, I have no interest in being a dramatic sadist. Right. Um, but it was kind of important to see, I thought the kind of work that was required here, because if you don't show it, you're leaving out, I think an aspect of the, of the way Chernobyl spread across so many kinds of trauma, you know, it, it just yeah. created these different kinds of trauma. And so, so yeah, but, but that's, it's their innocence, I think. Craig, I'll, I'll say, I'll tell you this, and I find this interesting. Um, as hard as that was for me to watch, I, I'm glad that I did, if that makes sense. And here's why, 
because if you think about what those animals would have suffered had they not been killed, um, that I don't know. To me, that gave me a little bit of comfort to know that they were not going to go through those painful experiences. Um, but interestingly enough, you talk about people checking out of the show or not. That was the like my wife. Uh, can't handle that kind of stuff. So she got up during the dog scenes and came back. But then she Fair did. Enough. <laughs> she did complete the series. She came back, watched episode five. So you didn't. I don't know if you, I don't think you lost people. I just think it was a very. I'm glad you showed it, and I wanted to say thank you because it's a, it's a hard thing, but I feel, feel like we had to see it. Um, sure. One of the things I will say to you, Craig, is I I I've been loving watching different filmmakers take on different genres. Um, I loved what Jordan Peele did going from comedy to horror with us and get out. Um, and what blows my mind is looking at your resume and the sense of you were primarily writing comedies for many, 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 many years. Hangover two, three, scary movie, three, four identity thief. We're talking about straight up comedies. Um, and then this, this is in completely different genre and I feel like I wanted to know what comedy writing taught you that helped you kind of tackle this. And, and this is such a different voice for you. Sure. Uh, no question about that. Um, but there are some things you learn from comedy. Um, first of all, you, you, you gain a sense of confidence, I think, because I'll just I mean, I've said this before. I'll say it until I'm dead. Comedy writing comedy is much, much harder than writing drama. It's not even close. The fact that that comedies never win Oscars with rare, you know, very rare exception is, yeah, is ridiculous. ridiculous. Only, only comedies should win best picture. I, and I mean that. Or horror and movies too. I, yeah. I mean, genre films are hard and they're hard because people walk into the theater with their arms crossed going, okay, scare me or okay, make me laugh. Nobody goes into a movie about, I don't know, a couple getting a divorce and goes, okay, make me cry. They don't even, it's not something that they do. They wouldn't just experience something. And then they do. Um, it's not surprising to me that Jordan Peele was able to do the terrific movies that he's done so far. His intelligence was evident from his comedy. Hmm. It's not surprising to me that Ben Stiller did such an incredible job directing escape Danamora because he's an incredibly smart comedian. It comes out of his work. You can just see it. And I think, when you look at some of the gender, <laughs> gender bending, that's, that's a different podcast, genre bending. <laughs> uh, when you look at some of the genre bending that Alec Berg and Bill Hader are doing on Barry, you just, it's intelligence. I mean, these are, when I think of the smartest people I know in show business who are writers, I'm thinking about guys like Alec Berg mm. and women like Megan Amram and women like you know, Aline Brosh McKenna, these are people that went to Harvard and they went to, well, all of those went to Harvard, you know, but these are very smart people. They're very thoughtful people. Um, and they apply that to what they do. Um, when you switch over into drama, the one thing that you carry with you, I, at least for me from comedy is a healthy respect of the audience. Hmm. You cannot bore people in comedy. You can't waste their time. You need to engage them every second of the way. That's what they're there for. And so when I was making, when I was writing Chernobyl, I just kept saying to myself, you can expand, Hmm. you know, you can sort of fill whatever space you want, but don't, I don't. I think that there, there, there has been a tendency lately for some of these limited series because the format is, is so malleable 
for writers to just kind of expand in a space. And I honestly, sometimes I watch these shows and I think, man, that seven episodes would have been an awesome five episodes, you know? Yeah. I actually was one, I was like, that was another question I was going to ask you, but I'll, I'll get to take it. I was, I was wondering how you decided on the five versus a seven versus a 10, but it sounds like you already answered it there. You basically said what you wanted to say in those five episodes and you didn't need to uh, have any more expanding, but all right, Jay, go ahead. We have, we have so many like filmmaking yeah. questions for you. Yeah. I, I just want to talk about sort of just your, your writing process. I had um, a, a colleague at, at work whose daughter wants to get into screenwriting, and I know that you recently made your Chernobyl scripts available, and I said, download these, have mm. her read them. It's a master class in terms of writing. And I want to talk about taking something that is inherently boring. I don't want to say boring, but like I'll say boring, and sure. making it captivating. I mean, like specifically episode five. You took a scene yeah. that involved moving blue and red plates up and down a slide, <laughs> yeah. and I was freaking yeah. glued. How, like, how do you take what would have bored me in chemistry class and make it some of those captivating yeah. television I've seen in forever? I don't know. I mean, no, I, I, well, I have an idea. I mean, first of all, I always give credit to my, you know, my main creative partner on this show is Johan Rank, who directed all the episodes. And, you know, so we were there in that sweltering, by the way, sweltering room uh, in Vilnius shooting the trial scene for a week. Yeah. Um, and and so we, you know, worked on that quite a bit and actually went and sort of rehearsed over the weekend, even with, and I had to, uh, the cards, the placards, I had to kind of choreograph which ones he would put up and when and wrote that. And if you look in the scripts, it'll say like R1, B1 or R1, L1 for right and left and all that and two and three and four and five. Um, but here's the secret. The secret is where do you find some, something that triggers a passionate response in what might be otherwise boring? Because there are things that in science that I find fascinating and, and it gets me going. There's a mystery involved. Um, you look for those moments where you feel this passionate connection to something. And generally speaking, they are, they are connected to some kind of very clear, very important result, sometimes an, a great result and sometimes a disastrous one. And you, you let that passion kind of lead the way. Okay, this part is sort of dryly interesting to me, but this isn't where the click is. The click for people is that we're building a case. And in this case, we're, we're talking essentially about good guys and bad guys in a nuclear reactor, except the good guys are the things that are holding the reaction down and the bad guys are the things that send it up. And then perversely, it's that there's too many good guys that creates a problem. So you get rid of too many of them and here come the bad guys. That's really how you just start thinking about it as just a very kind of dramatic story that's happening inside a process and let the part that fascinates you lead the way. Yeah. Now, Craig, I, I, I know we uh, I know we don't have a ton of time. Do you mind if we ask you a couple more questions before we go? Because we have go for it. We have we're, we have like so many things we want to get into. But I think one thing you do beautifully here is uh, you do exposition right. And what I mean by that is um, exposition sometimes can come across as it's not, I wouldn't even call it exposition. Like the sequence when Stellan and Jared are in the hel on the helicopter, and you basically give us a breakdown of nuclear physics. Like that to me was so perfect because it made sense that a character who wouldn't understand it needs to be explained it to. And what that dually does, as obviously you know as a writer, is you're explaining that to the audience. It's actually a perfect way to do it. Um, but one of the questions I had about 
the courtroom scene specifically, uh, and uh, again, I haven't gotten to the episode five of the podcast yet, so maybe you've already talked about this, but um, when Jared gets done with his testimony and goes out and he's told that this will never see the light of day, et cetera, you know, what information from that courtroom that day existed that gave you the details of what went down in that courtroom? Like, did, is a lot of what Jared said, what he really said, is it, did he really have those things he was moving, like, as you have in the show? Like, <laughs> like what? Well, here comes, yeah. here comes a big spoiler for you because you haven't heard the, the final podcast. Okay. Legasov was not there. Neither Ooh, was Sherbina. What? That's right. Are you kidding me? They were not there. Um, oh, I didn't the, know that. The trial... The actual trial Whoa. was a, as I described, it was a show trial and it proceeded as, as it was the last great Soviet show trial and it proceeded the way show trials do. There was no, you know, the stuff that's going on in there, what I basically did was I took an argument that was going on outside of the trial room. It was, it was going on back in Moscow and it was wow. happening essentially between scientists within the Kurchatov Institute and politicians in the Kremlin. Um, and there was a kind of a back and forth about trying to get this information out. And there was a certain level of people that wanted to suppress it. And then there were some who wanted to push it through. And there were moments where people had to do things and, and, and Legasov was sort of the, the spearhead of this had to do things to risk their careers. And he did, and he lost. So Essentially, what I did was take something from outside that was incredibly mm. hard to compress dramatically and place it in a courtroom where it was easy to that's compress amazing. dramatically. Um, so, yeah, but that's one of the but one of the reasons I did that podcast is just because I I don't think doing that is bad as long as you tell people you're doing it and explain yeah. why. And, yeah. and, and, and that the spirit of it is correct. I mean, look, if I had just shown a trial that was a, a show trial with no particular consequence starring actors you had not seen for the prior four episodes, you would have just been confused and turned it off. And if I had shown sort of long boardroom meetings and discussions in hallways of a nuclear institute, you probably also would have turned it off. So my job is to keep you watching, but also get the information and the essence of a, someone's individual personal crusade out there. And in fact, it was his personal crusade that led to his disconnection from his effective disconnection from the Kurchatov Institute, the elevation of people above him and ultimately his depression and suicide. And for people who watch the show and we'll get to Jake, obviously, but um, Emily Watson's character, similar concept. She's a construction of a bunch of different scientists into one, but Jake, go ahead. Well, no, I was just, just going to follow up on that and then I'll tap out. Cause I know you got places to be, I'm sure. The idea of having to change things for the dramatic and the narrative structure. Oftentimes in real life situations, we hear stories about writers taking something and making it a little bit more crazy and more exciting to be better for TV. Was there anything that was so wild and unbelievable that you had to scale it back out of fear that we wouldn't believe it? It was oh, yeah. a, a constant consideration. Um, there were some things that happened on the night, some you know, the denial that was going on was really hard to connect with at times. Um, and, and so I s sometimes kind of pulled back a little bit on it because I just didn't understand wow. how they were even going through that level of denial really. Um, and there were aspects of, um, the, the treatment of people in the hospitals and things like that, that were 
bizarre to me. Um, yeah. One of the accounts, um, the guy like Akimov uh, was was talking to like he was leaning out of the window of the hospital in Pripyat asking somebody to send cigarettes up to him. And it was like it just there's a lot Jeez. of stuff where you're like, how does this calculate? And, and, and I would say, well, I could do it. But I, there's that weird line where you're like, I want you to look at this and go, oh, my God, if that's true, that's crazy. But I don't want to cross the line into that's not true. That just seems right. dumb. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, I kept my eye on those things as best I could. Wow. Well, you did a great job. Thank you. Here, here's why you're a really good writer. And, this, and then I'm, I'm going to end on this question. But my, my wife and I were sitting down watching the show. And there's that sequence where the wife walks up to the firefighter who's clear, clearly struggling, touches his hand. And my wife goes, why is she doing that? There's no, but, but the whole point of that and the beauty of your script was that you were essentially showing the audience, my, myself and my wife, that people did not understand the severity of what they were encountering. And to me, that's when you're writing, the fact that you're making us question that stuff in the show, but never losing our suspension and disbelief, that's the true brilliance. All right, this is the last thing I'm gonna bring up if I never let you go, but um, from a filmmaking standpoint, you did so many brilliant things here. The cinematography is some of the best I've ever seen. I know it was shot digitally, but it looked like film. It was unbelievable. Um, the score is genius. It's a, it's a leading character in the show. Uh, I've heard people uh, likening it to different sound effects, but the way it hits you is amazing. Um, but I want to ask you about the titles of each episode. <laughs> and I understand that I understand the title, the, the significance of the 12345 in the first episode, but they're very interesting titles, and I was curious if you could talk about how you came up with each one. Obviously, the first one makes perfect sense, um, but how did you decide on those exact titles for each episode? Mm, I just sort of, I, I guess I pulled something out that struck me as essential to the core of what each episode was about. Um, and, and this is a strange series in that every episode kind of was its own sort of show. Um, they were doing different things. Um, so please remain calm to me, got right to the heart of this Sovietness of yeah. if, you know, if the Swedes don't find out and the Americans don't send a satellite, no one's ever going to know. And we'll just send this thing around saying, please remain calm. You're going to leave for a few days, but you'll come back. It just the, the awfulness of that lie um, was kind of, uh, I don't know, it just kind of cut to the heart of, of, of what I thought that was about. I know in episode four, the happiness of all mankind is, yeah. is a direct quote from a first person account of a liquidator who saw that sign, you know, the goal of, you know, our goal is the happiness of all mankind. And just the contrast of, of what was a kind of utopian dream with the reality, um, which was a dystopian nightmare for those guys, but also the kind of begrudging familiarity with that. It wasn't like anybody in the Soviet Union would see that and go, wow, you know, this This is not really the happiness of all mankind. Jeez, no, they knew. <laughs> the whole thing yeah. was kind of embedded in an irony, um, a deep sort of irony. And then, the, you know, the last episode, um, uh, Vichnaya Pamyat is, that is the memorial hmm. um, prayer that is sung for um, people who have passed on. And to me, that final episode and really the series itself needed to stand in memory of those people. So that was the most important part for me. Yeah. And you did a great job. And Craig, we're going to let you go. I saw a tweet today that I thought you might be really happy to hear. Um, someone talked about, I'm paraphrasing them, the idea that the presence of the radiation was always in every scene. It was the monster of every scene. And if we, if we ever get you again, I definitely want to dive into kind of how you kept that 
presence? Was it something you did in your writing that you kind of kept that pounding at us? I thought that was very fascinating. Great. I'm, I'm glad. And, and I should mention, just because you mentioned uh, Yako Bira was our cinematographer who did this incredible job. Oh. And and Hilda uh, Gunadotter was our remarkable composer. And I will say, just to briefly answer your question, Yako... Jakob's idea was that light was always light is radiation and he would he would play with it inside of scenes in ways that you oh, probably didn't even realize really but, yeah but he Can you give kept, an example um well there's a great example um in the courtroom scene um when Legasso says uh, a reactor that was supposed to run at 3200 megawatts went north of 33,000 as he's saying that there is this very subtle thing where it seems like a cloud sort of moves by and the sun sort of filters in a bit more. And it's oh. it's just happening underneath, Subtly. you know. Yeah, it's subtle. But Jacob is a real, he's a genius, you know. He's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. So um, I'm glad that you, you know, I always, I'd like to give you know, any chance I can to, I mean, the big joke is in movies, you know, they give everybody credit for the script except the writer. And in television, <laughs> they give the writer credit for everything. And I'm like, no, I mean, you got to call out the the incredible people and the cast and all that. They were yeah. awesome. It was well, a we will, huge team. Yeah. We want to thank you. Uh, thank you for this show. Thank you. Thank you for educating us. I, uh, I had yeah. no idea uh, what and, – and by the way, check out Craig's podcast for the show. The detail that they go into – Craig's research, I think, started in 2014, I believe. It yeah. is insane. Like, you pronounce every name perfectly. I'm, like, sitting there going <laughs> I, I, I was like, before the interview today, I was like, I need to make sure I have all these names right. That's why I didn't say a single name. I was like, I'm going okay. to get them all wrong. Um, it's all right. But, but please continue writing. You're a phenomenal writer, and uh, thank you for taking the time. And uh, people, uh, he came on our show because of Twitter, which was so cool. So, How about that? Yeah. All right. Thanks, well, Craig. thank you guys for having me. Uh, this is a movies podcast, obviously, and we're putting off talking about this week's movies because they are lackluster. Oh, maybe not. I, you know, I actually don't know this. Um, you guys saw Shaft. Am I right? I saw Shaft. Oh, you saw Shaft. Kevin has not seen it yet. Jake, give me a quick breakdown on uh, you damn right. Uh, that is a character that is very much a product of a certain time in history. Yes. When uh, certain things were arguably more cool and more realistic and more acceptable. Misogyny? Um, You're talking about misogyny. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. as we get older, Shaft more and more, and as we progress as a society, uh, Shaft seems more and more like a product of a bygone era. Okay. And it's starting to feel, the like, as we keep making these movies, because the last one we made was 20 years ago, uh, it, it, it keeps, it begins to feel as if it's a fish out of water kind of thing. Okay. Like, because the shaft has to remain shaft in order to maintain the integrity of the character. But we're, we exist in a world in which he can't be shaft anymore. And I'm just not, enti- for, for me, I don't really have an emotional connection to that character. And it just sort of felt like, especially being in 2019, that it's, that, that that's the only joke that they have left to go with that character because right. he can't exist because the, the, I mean, arguably both the Sam Jackson character and um, the Richard Roundtree original character, they just, they, they can't exist in today's uh, age without being called out. Okay. And my biggest problem with this newest chef in 2019 is that that's, that's just the entire joke okay. is that Sam Jackson's son played by Jesse T. Usher is essentially just, Spending the entire movie going, Dad, you can't say that. Okay. You can't, you can't, like, it's, it's 2019, you can't say things like that anymore. 
And uh, to me, that just got to, to, to then I just went, well, then why are we? You know what that sounds like back? to me? You know that I haven't seen the movie yet. It sounds like to me they wanted to get away with offensive jokes, and the way they that's, could that's get, exactly they, it. That's right. exactly it. Like, the way they, he would, yeah, he would say things, and I would just go like, "You can't, you can't say, say that." that in but a movie. if you have but a character yeah. saying you can't say that, yeah, you get away with it. That's, that's exactly right. That's but actually it, smart, but that would get annoying. But then, it, but then it just it yeah. makes you question like, well, then what's the point of bringing this character? Like, right, why, why right. couldn't Shaft just be a product of of nineteen seventy one? And and in the 1970s, and like Shaft is such an iconic 70s character. Do we really need Shaft in 2019? And I'm not entirely. This movie didn't convince me that we did. In the same way that the Sam Jackson sequel didn't convince me that it did 20 years ago. Well, man, alive! Did you give me a brilliant transition into Men in Black? Talk about another <laughs> movie we don't need. We just I this I think I say this in the review I wrote for Cinema Blend. This movie just didn't convince me that we needed more. Men in Black, it's, uh, I can't understand what happened with this movie. It is so unimaginative. That's and a bummer. It's a I have not seen it. That's a really, that's a big bummer. It's a franchise that to me lends itself to a type of creativity that is not inherent in every other franchise because it's rooted in aliens and science fiction and creatures that are walking amongst us and that should be a gateway to being incredibly inventive. Um, and if you're going to bring it back after a seven year absence, you would think that you would have a great story or a villain or some such reason to bring them back. And yet the script lets down uh, Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth uh, at every turn. And I think the two of them try the best that they can. And I like their chemistry together. I'm going to say one thing about Hemsworth. He's doing this polished dunce, character a little bit too often it's getting to be a little bit repetitive it's his ghostbusters secretary it's elements of thor now it's the the, men of black and i i think he's capable of doing a lot more but he's sort of just falling into that groove and i think staying there i don't and i'm not quite sure if that's all he's being offered or if that's just the way he decides to play these different characters but um I realized watching Men in Black, I was like, ah, you know what? Now I'm starting to see this from him too often. So I was disappointed in it. I don't really quite get why they brought it back. Well, uh, two things. One, um, unfortunately, I was not able to see either of these screenings because I was uh, traveling with my family. But the um, I'm going to see Men in Black tomorrow night. So I'll be I'll, I'll tweet out a review or whatever. But uh, two things you said. One, uh, I was curious during the press for this at all. Did anybody ask Chris or Tessa their thoughts on Liam, Liam Neeson? Uh, and kind of went what went down with that. I was I didn't see that come out. I was oh, wondering no. about that, and and I and by no means am I saying that like the story's not a big deal. But don't you sort of feel like that story's kind of gone away and it's not that it, big of a deal anymore? Yes, but if you're if he's in the movie and like you're interviewing Tessa and Chris, do you do you ask about it? I mean, like, like I, I mean I, I'm not saying that. I mean, listen, I'm not that kind of reporter. I don't normally ask things like that that I think are like too old. Like Jake, you would agree, but yeah, I but I'm gonna say I think that's the thing. I think like I mean, it's not. It's still relevant, really. In it, it, yeah. like I said, it kind of came and went. Um, if you were it, told to ask it, would you ask it? Or no, because I would say it's not relevant. Yeah, yeah. I would say it's not. In, in the same way, you know, uh, in in Chicago, uh, 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 Jesse Smollett is still like a relevant story, and I would I would think that was sort of justified. Um, but I mean, no one's really. T- I mean, is it, do you yeah. have how did that story about? just go away? How did it that's just what get I'm saying? It's, away? I mean, it, it's and it, that's well, that's its own story, and that's that, not to get into too many local Chicago angles, but it's it's still very much a story here. Yeah. No, I and, mean the Liam Neeson. How did the Liam, oh, the Neeson, Liam Neeson, Neeson get swept story? Away? 
I don't know because I can't say it was handled well because he just he just kept making it every time he spoke he kept making it worse and yeah, yeah. So like, I think his publicist finally just maybe had to grab him by the collar and just say shut up stop yeah. talking everything you're saying is worse than the thing you said an hour ago. <laughs> True. But when you when you go back to Hemsworth for a second, um, I didn't love Bad Times of the El Royale, but I thought he was incredible in that movie and I, and I wish. That character, like I remember talking to someone, I really think like Bad Times at the El Royale would have been a perfect like Netflix series, fleshed out over ten episodes, mm-hmm. and you and you jump into each character and their backstories, and then you give us the finale. Um, to I mean, I think Chris Hemsworth, Bad Times at the El Royale character would be a fascinating character to dive into, but I didn't really understand what he was, and, and because it was such short lived, it was uh, information on screen. So uh, I know you guys love Bad Times, but. Hemsworth does have range, especially you could see it there. Um, uh, Men in, yeah, Men in Black, I just, I don't understand why it was made. I didn't see that anybody out there was going, I want another Men in Black movie, unless Will Smith returned. You know yeah. what I mean? Or or Tommy Lee Jones or Josh Brolin. You know what I mean? I don't, well, I don't, I don't, and that's I don't, the thing. Like, when they bring these franchises back, whether it be Terminator or whether it be... Uh, I guess if Alien ever brought Sigourney Weaver back, it'd be something like that. Oh, okay, Jamie Lee Curtis coming back for Halloween. The idea of bringing her back is there's a connection to the originals. Right. But when you just bring them back with new people, again, I'm not saying that it can't be done, but but I have to see an example of just like, oh, that was the story. You know, that's why right. I, you brought the franchise back. You had this great story to tell. And in, instead, I truly believe that someone went into a, a studio executive meeting and was just like, all right. Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth are men in black. And everyone was like, go with it. Yes. And then they just stopped doing anything else on yeah. it completely. I, I saw I saw something on, um, on I guess it was on Twitter, Variety. Like someone had asked Tessa Thompson if she still was, if she was upset, not upset, but that it's called men in black and yeah. she's a woman. So I, I, I found that to be an interesting discussion. Like why, why not? Why is it still called men in black? If it's, right. a, if, if one of the leading characters is a woman in black, there's a joke. Like, in you know it. What I mean? There's a joke yeah. in is the there, movie that addresses that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the whole concept of being called men in black is because they wear black suits. Correct. That's the whole concept of that. I mean, right? sure. but then, I mean, then you get into, you know, which was discussed in dark Phoenix, X-Men. Yeah. X-Men yes. versus right. X-Women. Yeah. But I mean, I do find it interesting that they wouldn't even alter the title. Slightly, if uh, if a woman was the leading character. I mean, I mean, I mean to be honest, I think Men in Black International is one of the worst titles. Of it's a bad title. It's, it's a really a bad, bad title. It's a really bad title. It also, it's also one of those movies where they just regurgitate the same jokes from the franchise. Like, there's literally a scene where they are showing on a monitor aliens that are being um, monitored. Monitor, yeah. a monitor. Can I say yeah. monitor again? Um, and it's you know current celebrities now who you would suspect might be might be aliens. And I was like, oh, that was really funny 20 years ago when you guys made it in yeah. the original movie. So. Does the movie exist in the same universe as Will Smith's? Yes. There's so a, are those characters referenced? They're not ref- Well, there's a painting. There's a couple of paintings on the wall of previous significant alien-human interactions. And one of them is Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones confronting the alien at the end of the first movie. Oh, wow. Okay. So they're not, they're not mentioned... But it's it's shown that they definitely exist in this year. I want to see. I, I, I'm going in with an open mind, uh, but I'm just concerned as to why the movie even exists. Mm-hmm. You will leave with those same concerns. <laughs> so I say, all right. This and, and by the way, Tessa Thompson, one of the best actresses working today, right now. Incredible. And Love I will her. say, she's fantastic in the movie. And that's what doesn't and make any sense good. to me. Yeah. Is like you have this amazing talent, yep. and 
How does it go to waste? I like her a lot. Me too. When I, when I was watching her in this, I just kept thinking of how great she was in Annihilation. And I was like, I wish you did more movies like that. She's brilliant in Creed. She's brilliant yep, in Creed. Amazing. Yeah. Yes. So. She's great as Valkyrie. I did. Listen, yeah. she'll be fine. <laughs> I'm yeah, not worried yeah. about what this movie will do to her career. They'll both be fine. F. Gary Gray, I'm not so sure. Uh, this week's real blend game, real this week's blend game is hashtag Ron Howard blend. And we had some really good social media reactions. Some people really struggling with this. And then it was, it's true. When I look back over his movies, I think this is where we're going to have a lot of fun with what I would call his best movie might not be my favorite movie. Interesting. Um, I think yeah. I, okay. That, that, okay. Interesting. Because I think he's made some films that are really respected, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't call them my favorite things that he's done. Um, yeah. I don't know what order we're supposed to go in, Gabe, because you're so busy planning for the next episode of Hero Blend that you failed to get that far down into the show yeah. notes. Eric Eisenberg cannot go first. To and create. By the, yeah, well, no, on Hero Blend today, they're doing Ron Howard Blend as well. So he's just oh. making sure that they're all set up for their, uh, for their oh, movies. Yeah. Gabe says, or no one sent me their picks. Well, that's a lie, Gabe, because I sent you my pick for sure. I don't remember I getting a text message saying, hey, send me your pick. No, mm. but I think Eric and Adrian both don't, got- Don't throw um, your arms up in the air. You do the same thing for 71 <laughs> weeks and when we hit week 72. All right, I'm going to go first then. Um, And because I'm picking my favorite of his and not his best because he's made some spectacularly competent films, uh, my favorite of his is Parenthood. And this will factor into the fact that I'm the oldest one in the show and have kids of my own. Um, But that is a movie that I thought was entertaining when I first watched it. And have now realized how brutally honest (laughs) that movie is. Like, that movie is in tune with, A, things that I have experienced, B, people who I've met and have seen what they've gone through. Uh, And it's just a great way of showing uh, different generations uh, and the struggles that they have. And no matter how old you get, um, you're still going to have issues with your kid. Jason Robards has a great subplot in that where his son is a deadbeat gambler and he's sick of giving him money. And you might not relate to that story at a certain point, but the older you get, you realize like, oh, there, I know people who, who are in both of those positions. And of course, the character that I'm going to, not that I'm not that I am this character, but I at least feel exactly what he means is Steve Martin's character. Steve Martin's character who will move mountains for his children when the when his kid loses his braces you know he thinks it gets swept up in the trash and they spend all the time after the dinner sifting through trash to find something because it's important to their kid and their kid is emotionally fragile and 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 they just don't want to set off they want to make him comfortable or when the cowboy doesn't show up at his birthday party and he's afraid the birthday party is going to tank and the dad gets dressed up and pretends to be the cowboy like it just dials into every sort of, and then the story with Keanu Reeves, um, you know, as a young father, and a, the, it, to show the different levels of it, it's masterful storytelling, and it's a tremendous cast, and I just think it's one of the most rewatchable Ron Howard ones. I was going to do Splash. Splash is so much fun, and Tom Hanks is so great in it, but I, if I have to pick one of my all-time favorites, I went Parenthood. It's a good That's choice. A great, That's a great, great movie. Um, Thank you. I look forward to, to your point, Rewatching it when and if I have kids one day. Um, yes. Did you ever watch the series? Yes. Um, oh, the, the series was the entire series. And incre- it's I mean, uh, oh my god, I cried on a weekly basis with that show. Um, 
Yes. And I went into that show with everybody saying it's just going to make you cry on the regular. And I was stunned at how swept up in the characters I got uh, yeah. with, with that Craig show. Craig T. Nelson and was fantastic. Great. Everyone in it's great. And Lauren Graham, I now know Lauren Graham as Parenthood. I know everybody associates her with Gilmore Girls, but um, but Same. yeah, it's a tremendous show. All right, Jake, you're next. Um, I have a feeling based on what you keep saying over and over again about the difference between best and favorite <laughs> that I, my favorite might be what you consider to be best, which is okay. Apollo 13. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, and we've talked about this, this, this or beautiful mind, right? Aren't those fair two? Enough. His, yes. His I mean, best? Fair, beautiful mind is what he won all the awards for. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think Apollo 13 is better than a beautiful mind. Oh, Apollo 13 um, is so good. It's so good. But. I mean, we're talking about I, – I think that is one of the most suspenseful movies I've ever seen. Yeah. And we know what ha- – you go into it knowing <laughs> they're okay, knowing for a fact. Forget the fact if you've seen it a thousand times. Whether you've seen it before, like you go into it knowing that they're fine. And somehow it's one of the most suspenseful films. I mean my – I cannot – I've seen that movie a thousand times. My stomach still gets into knots when things start going wrong. Yep. I mean, like so somewhere deep down inside, I start questioning whether or not they're going to make it back. The direction of that movie is absolutely masterful. I mean, that that came out at like peak Hanks when he had I mean, he was just I mean, he was coming off of two Oscars. It was, you know, like, like the 90s essentially belonged to Tom Hanks. And that yeah. was like right in the middle of it. Uh, I just, it, you know, it's an amazing cast. Uh, uh, you know, Gary Sinise, Kevin Bacon, Ed Harris, uh, his speech about bringing them home. I mean, every one of those, Bill Pullman, Paxton, Paxton, Bill Paxton. Paxton. Yeah, sorry, Paxton. excuse me. Um, uh, every single one of them, it feels like a fully fleshed out character. Right. Uh, you know, no, no one feels, no one gets slighted, you know, just because Tom Hanks is the lead. Everyone gets their moment. It's it's absolutely absolutely incredible. It um, is really funny that it gets overlooked because of the other movies Hanks had in the nineties, right? right? Like yeah. it's Philadelphia, it's Forrest Gump. People Forrest defer Gump, to Toy those. Toy Story and Green Mile, yeah. and that um, Apollo thirteen is like oh the one he did in oh, between. Yeah. Those. yeah, also Apollo thirteen. I asked, uh, <laughs> I, I interviewed Tom Hanks for Cloud Atlas one time. Name and drop. I asked him. I know my my. If there's anyone in his name, I'm going to drop to the day I die. It's going to be Tom Hanks. <laughs> and I asked him if if in, in any of his past movies, because you know in Cloud Atlas he plays like multiple characters. Right. If he could play multiple characters in any of his other movies, which one would he wanted to? Do, which one would he want to do? And he said he would have loved to have done Apollo 13 and just played everyone on the spaceship. Oh, that's awesome. Which, oh that, which is just a funny image. <laughs> With Polar Express CGI. Oh, dear God. <laughs> I love Polar Express. Polar Express <laughs> is an amazing horror film. It's a, it's a great movie. <laughs> Kevin, you're up. Um, well, you know, Ron Howard is one of those, yeah, it's a very hard decision to make in regards to best versus, or favor versus, I guess, best, right? And, you know, if you look at his entire filmography, everything he's done has generally been different, right? I mean, Apollo 13 is a very different film than um, Beautiful Mind. You know, he, Rush, he kind of likes to challenge himself in different fields. And I think that uh, Howard has a signature, but that it it doesn't overpower the storytelling of his movies. Like, it it feels like a Ron Howard movie, but then it still feels different enough that it, it just, it feels like he's challenging himself each time. Um... But, I mean, you know, you put all of his movies together, I think only one of them really is the one that stands by itself. 
Oh no! Uh, oh and, no! And, and, oh no! And you got to go with Solo. You have you have to. <laughs> and you know the direction, the direction in that stop. scene. Stop. When that guy, I mean, first of all, wait, not the movie, just that scene. Think, think about Howard behind the camera. Okay, <laughs> you're directing this scene. You have Alden or Aaron Reich. And you have the guy playing. God, the, the beginning of this the, episode the was so computer. much better. <laughs> right. So the guy at the computer. I mean, think about Ron Howard's direction. Can I go to Hero Blend too? <laughs> Is Hero Blend hiring? Like I, I envision, I envision a moment. Eric, please. I'm sorry. What I about what I said. I envision a moment where Ron Howard walks over to the guy at the computer and says. When you say your line, this is going to be a massive deal. Just like really kind of <laughs> pause and think about what you're saying. Remember, the whole bit here is the audience needs to understand that because he doesn't have people and he's by himself, he has to be solo. And like, trust me, the audience is going to get a kick out of it. So they got like, so I, I, I And just, I did. I did get a kick out of it. I just, I just, I just see Ron Howard like directing this scene as if it's yeah he knows how big of a deal it was um no i'm kidding anyways uh but that one aside uh i think his best movie and favorite movie is beautiful mind and i think um more of a personal note as somebody who's uh i mean again the the mental elements that russell crowe's characters dealing with in beautiful mind are very extreme um but i think they're relatable to a lot of people who deal with mental illness or mental um, uh, elements in their lives. I mean, as somebody personally for me, I've dealt with anxiety and OCD and, uh, and ADD and things like that over, over the years. And I've, you know, since I was a kid, I've been in and out of different, you know, doctors and therapy. And I think one of the fascinating things that beautiful mind, I always look back at that movie as like a, as a reminder of what, what people can achieve if they're going through something as horrible as he was going through and, uh, you know, keeping his family intact and, you know, his wife, you know, didn't Jennifer Connelly stick with him the whole way essentially. Yeah. And, yes. you know, it was a very interesting thing. So one of the fascinating parts about um, Beautiful Minds at the end of the movie, uh, Paul Bettany's character is in his imagination. Right. And, um, and Paul, Paul Bettany, Bet the little girl and Ed Harris. Right. right. Yeah. And so there's a scene where he walks by, uh, Paul Bettany's character, who's obviously trying to engage with him, mm -hmm. and he just kind of walks by. Um, and I always looked at that scene, not, you know, in my particular anxiety, I, I don't see and talk to other people, but my my point of that is, like, I do have anxieties and, and, and things that are irrational in my mind sometimes, and I always look at that scene and go, look at, like, look what he did there. He just kind of, like, walked by the problem and just kind of, it, it, it's... It was a reminder that anybody dealing with any type of mental suffering, um, it's kind of always going to be there, but there's, it's about how you manage it and how you deal with it. Um, and I thought, I don't know, there was something about that scene that always stuck with me, and I thought that Howard really kind of captured um, the struggle of somebody dealing with mental health um, situations. And I found that to be, you know, listen, that, that's an extreme situation, but the mental health is uh, is all over the place for a lot of different people. And while, whether yours might not be as extreme as that or, you know, mine's not as extreme as that, but you find relatability in somebody who truly was a brilliant person who was, you know, being um, tortured in his mind with things that he couldn't control. So I just found that fascinating and a very interesting perspective that I've never seen a movie really tackle the way it did. And I think Howard did a brilliant job with that. You know, that and the solo scene really, you know, are for me, really what really drive home him as a filmmaker. You know what I mean? Like, and that, that's the thing. Like, like 
I don't, I'm surprised Paul Bettany at the end of that scene didn't look over at him and go, dude, I'm, but I'm solo here. Help me out. Like, why don't you come, come talk to me? <laughs> I am um, your people. I am your people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but I love Beautiful Mind. That, that's definitely my number one. Beautiful Mind is one of those movies, too. Like, uh, I'll always remember it for this reason. When we get into the awards season, and this podcast started as an awards podcast, there are these titles that have a ton of buzz and, uh, you know, whether it's artificial or not, but, but they're like, oh, this is going to be the one. This will be the one. And rarely do you go in to watch those movies and think like, oh, the buzz was 100% right. Like sometimes it's it just either deflates it, you know, or it doesn't live up to the expectation. And Beautiful Mind had a ton of buzz around it because Russell Crowe, when we talk about Tom Hanks, how big he was in the 90s, Russell Crowe was huge going into Beautiful Mind. Yeah, think about how big Crowe used to be. Huge. What about Jim did he, Carrey? Did he have uh, three Oscar nominations in a row? Didn't he get nominated for Insider, then Gladiator? LA Confidential. Oh, did he get nominated for LA Confidential? I thought he. I, th- I thought it was Insider, Gladiator, and then uh, and then this. Mind. That Think about right. the '90s for one second. Okay, yeah. it's 2019. Think about how big Jim Carrey, Nicolas yes. Cage, and Russell Crowe were in the '90s. Yes, yeah. enormous. Carrey, like, as a Carrey, was disturbingly yeah. big. Like I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, like even though I'd argue he's still bigger than those three, but Tom Hanks isn't as big as as oh yeah he, as he was in the '90s. Like sure. Tom Hanks can't open a movie on his own. He can. Open I disagree with that. All right, last, I think people la, la, went to go see Tom Hanks movie that that people went to see that wasn't a franchise. So hold on, let me let me. Sully? Like, that's a real. It's based on a real life story. But, that, but they went to go see it. To, I mean, Bridge of Spies did well. The when he worked well. with Spielberg, I think people are people seeing Bridge of Spies because it's Tom Hanks. Or are they seeing because it's Spielberg? I think Spielberg. I think, oh, I two of them together. I disagree. I think they saw Sully because it was Tom Hanks as Sully. Okay, what about? Yeah. All right, so Toy Story they're going to see because it's Toy Story, not because of yeah, Tom Hanks. Yeah. But I do find it interesting, like Tom Cruise, when he makes a movie outside of Mission Impossible, they don't open well. American, uh, what was it called? American Made. American made. made. Uh, yeah. Edge of Tomorrow, uh, unfortunately, did not do extremely well in theaters. Oh, there and are I, no more movie stars. There that's are no more what movie I, stars I disagree. What about Denzel? I think Leonardo DiCaprio is still a movie star. I think Denzel. Well, DiCaprio makes so few movies. But they always open big. Look at the Revenant. Really Say that I would say Look at the, the actors who consistently make movies that people go see is would be in the, uh, Denzel. I think yeah. people still go see Denzel movies. People still go see Leonardo DiCaprio though. Wolf of Wall Street and Revenant made a ton of money, yeah, like but, hundreds I mean, of millions of dollars. It's been two years, I mean ten years, and that's it's been those Maybe that's two. The key. Maybe that's the key though. Would you Maybe, put The Rock but, on there? Yes. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. Nowadays, yeah. Nowadays, for sure. But I mean. Will The Rock have bigger openings than Fast and Furious movies on his own? No. Probably but not. But he'll still, like, you know, Skyscraper and all those movies, they still made a couple hundred million bucks. Mm-hmm. They still did well enough, like, yeah. in different markets. Hobbs like, and Shaw will do well. Jumanji will do Hobbs well. I think Hobbs and Shaw is going to destroy. I think yeah. it's going to be this late summer. People get frustrated by no decent blockbusters, and they're just going to go see that. Yeah, they position the that perfectly. And those are the, those are the two best characters in Fast and Furious Eight. So you capitalize off of what people liked in that movie. Well, you forget Tyrese, though. Yeah, <laughs> right. But I mean, but but to, but there, this is an interesting discussion. We should further in another podcast when we do it. But I think there's a very interesting argument about what happened to the movie star, and I think that Jake and I we've. I think Denzel and DiCaprio, you could argue. Sandra Bullock, I would argue, can still open movies. And uh, I, I mean, she does, man. Look at, I mean, I'm not she, entirely sure Bird Box would have done well in theaters. Gravity, 
That was, was ten years ago. It was it still gravity. Still made a lot of money though. Well, yeah, but so did Forrest Gump. Well, t- no, Forrest Gump was twenty years ago. I know, but like, if we're gonna start just randomly Gravity's pulling titles, in. Gravity's relative. Gravity recent. is not recent. Two thousand fourteen. As right? we wrap up, and I only ask this question because we're all going to London. Do you yes. guys feel a weird lack of buzz for Spider Man? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're less I than two weeks fair. out from it. Yeah, I don't think- know, two, three weeks out. Maybe yeah. we're too far out. I listen. I'm one of the biggest Spider-Man fans of all time, and I repeatedly remind myself that we're two weeks away from, or three weeks away from, a Spider-Man movie being yeah. in theaters. I'm super excited that it's coming, and I can't wait for it to be here. Um, but you know, Endgame sucked up a lot of. I the almost feel the like it, I would have been more excited about it if we had gotten a year just to soak in what happened from Endgame. Maybe, maybe, but I'm not gonna balk yeah. about the fact that it's coming. I'll be really happy yeah. when it's here. Yeah. I hope it's as good as I want it to be, and I'll go see it multiple will, times. I'm talking to RDJ this. this weekend. Yes, that's gonna be that's awesome. awesome. That's and awesome. Honestly, right this and cheese pizza and cheese pizza, right? <laughs> and this moment. Right now, they're, they're, the two films that I, that I can't wait for to come out and to you know, see is Jane Silent Bob Reboot and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow. Those, to me, are like, like ultimately my two like most anticipated of the year. Mine's probably – well, we'll get into this later. But I'm starting to get excited for Rise of Skywalker. I kind of want to see if they can – I want to see if they can stick it. Yeah, you are. I kind of want to see if they can stick it. All right, I'm audience ex- I'm picks. excited to see it. And I have entire faith in JJ. If it was Colin Trevorrow, I'd be out. Oh, Lord. I would of just course. Like, I would, God, uh, remember when I, we used to have faith in Gabe? Yeah. That was Apparently, a fun time. Hero Blend has a lot of faith in him. Oh, I, uh, I like it. Audience pick for Ron Howard Blend. And again, thank you everybody for participating, going over to the Real Blend Twitter feed at Real Blend and playing along with hashtag Ron Howard Blend. Uncle Sim says he loves Apollo 13, but also Willow and that great score by James Horner. Uh, Jeffrey Care says he's stuck between Apollo 13, A Beautiful Mind, and Cinderella Man. Also, a great Ron Howard great. Russell love Crow Cinderella Man collaboration. That is really good. Uh, Anna Louise, Anna Louise, I know struggled the most with this one. And the minute we announced that it was going to be Ron Howard Blend, she instantly was on social media saying, "I can't figure this out." She's apparently a huge Ron Howard fan. She's caught between Apollo 13, Rush. And Frost Nixon, which is a oh, tremendous I love all three movie. of those. I love all three of those. And Arthur Mingo said Frost Nixon. Frost Nixon is love great. Frost Nixon. Love and Frost, Frost Nixon, Nixon um, should have done much better at the Oscars. And I, I forget what I mean, it, it got nominated by. It did. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Did. it did. I forget what it lost to that year. I, uh, um, I did that junket. I did that junket too. In Rich Carlson, New York? What? Yeah, we're both in New York. Why yes. were we friends? Uh, I don't know. You're too busy hanging out with all the cool junket people. Uh, next week, our subject is not going to be uh, a big time movie star like Russell Crowe or um, Tom Hanks. We're going with a character actor who has a lot better films than people remember. And it's going to make this one much more difficult than I think, unless Kevin goes with uh, his obvious choice. But we're going to play hashtag Killian Murphy blend. We're going to discuss the Ooh. films of Killian Murphy. Oh, yeah. And when you uh, go over his IMDb, it's going to be more complicated than you think. A lot Film more complicated than you think. or performance? Movie. Okay. Movie. Gabe what, doesn't even care Gabe? anymore. Gabe, I understand you've checked out. No one's asking you, dude. <laughs> so go on social media and use hashtag Killian Murphy Blend to let us know your pick. You can also, of course... 
Email the show. We're at realblend at cinemablend.com. If you guys want to also email us a review because you don't happen to be on the iTunes, please go ahead and do that. Send it to realblend at cinemablend.com. We promise that we will read them at the top of the show. Next week's show, uh, I can tease this, we are going to be live together, all three of us, uh, in (laughs) where else? London, England, where the three of us is the only time that we get together and record podcasts. By the way, um, my grandma listened to our podcast for the first time. That's hilarious. She listened to the entire hour and 45 minutes of last week's episode. Okay. Um, I, I, and it blew my mind when she texted me. So, I, I mean, she sent me, not texted me, she emailed me. She doesn't text. Um, but she emailed me saying, thanks for the podcast. Very interesting. You sound great. I was wondering how long they are because it did not indicate length of podcast. It does, but uh, and, and and then she asked. She said she was going to say that she was going to talk to my aunt Char about how to figure them all out. But she got through the entire episode and she loved it. Can we record your grandma yelling Dunkirk and just yes. use that as our ender? That's a great idea. Please. You know, we should get my grandfather to do it. He was. Actually, oh, I'm going to start getting really nervous about what I say on this podcast if I know your grandma is listening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I she listens to the episodes that I send her, so I don't. You know, like, I. If Jake says something crazy, I just won't send that episode. That <laughs> send her the latest Tira Blend episode. She'll. Uh, oh, I know. Oh, no, 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 no. That's all she's listening to now. She doesn't. No, she only listened to Hero Blend. She just uh, heard my voice instead. <laughs> gotcha. But yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So, so next week we'll be back. Uh, like I said, we're all in London. We're doing the Spider-Man Far From Home junket. We're going to record a very special episode from London. Oh, Kevin, uh, prep this. We're doing um, our five favorite movies of 2019 to date so start yeah. putting together your list i already got them we're going to reveal our movies next week uh the, our choices for that next week jake's so number one we, is us uh yeah i'm sure that's that's gonna be up there um so until then we will talk to you guys next week uh when we're back in london together and until that point dunkirk <laughs> that was Sound like you're going through puberty <laughs> This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.